Hey everybody, welcome to the 108th episode of the JDO Show. I'm your host, J. David Osborne, and today on the program we have the legendary Jeff Noon, the author of Vert, and most recently, A Man of Shadows and The Body Library, which are both part of the the Detective Nyquist series, the first of which finds the hero in a city that is made up completely of daylight, and then the sequel, which takes place in a city made up entirely of stories. So it's these great noir narratives with great character work that also have just tremendous imagination on display. Probably the most fun I've had reading novels in a really long time, so that comes with my highest recommendation. I'm trying to do this intro as fast as I can before more scooters come by because I'm approaching my last few days in Seoul here and uh, the scooter traffic is just wild. They do, uh, they do drive the scooters out here. So thank you so much for listening. Please do check out both A Man of Shadows and The Body Library. I hope you enjoy this 108th episode with the man, Mr. Jeff Noon. Thank you. Right, right. Well, so. they, they, uh, I remember reading something about this recently where Apple essentially admitted that once their products, their phones hit a certain uh, once they turn a year old or something, yeah. the, the phone stops working correctly. And the, the reason they gave was so that it could uh, preserve the battery's life, which just smelled like bullshit to me. But Yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> so where are you? I live in El Paso, Texas. Wow, that sounds impressive. I guess. Yeah. I mean... Uh, yeah. Like like something from a Western movie to my ears, you know. Right. I'm seeing John Wayne and stuff. El Paso. I'm sure I've seen that in a Western. Oh yeah, yeah, and it's yeah. it's where uh, it's where Cormac McCarthy lived for a time. So all oh, right, we got a lot of his. Uh, I haven't gotten a chance to go look at it, but the local college has a lot of his uh, unpublished papers, which are of interest to me i just haven't got my ass down there to look at it but yeah i mean it's yeah. the it's the desert you know i mean it's yeah literal, it's literal tumbleweeds and coyotes and <laughs> cactus and stuff like that <laughs> it sounds brilliant oh, it sounds yeah. really good i mean this i live in brighton which is like a seaside resort right. on the south coast oh that sounds terrible <laughs> no it's it's <laughs> It's got a lot of like faded grandeurs, you might say, okay. which a lot a lot of English seaside resorts have got. Uh, but it's nice; it's a good place. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's got that weird combination of nice things for tourists, mm-hmm. and then rest of stuff, yeah. which isn't so nice. But it's got some really interesting bits in it, which is good. And there's lots of artists and creative people types here. Uh, not that I mingle with them, of course. Right, right. I'm banned. I I've been banned. <laughs> oh, is it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, what what brought you to that? But yeah, so what what brought you to Brighton? Because you were originally from uh, Manchester, right? That's right. Yeah, I was born in Manchester. Lived there for about forty two years. Uh, wrote a lot about it in my books, and then um, I don't know. Just decided it was time for a change. You know, forty two years is a long time. So. Uh, and I was doing readings and that, traveling the country, and came to do Brighton one night, and just kind of fell in love with the place. So, a couple of years later, when we were looking around, we decided on Brighton. You're talking about the seaside. For a while there, I lived in, um, and for a while, I mean, a few years ago, I lived in Portland, Oregon, and that was kind of a similar. Uh, it was. It's not. It's on a river, so it's not exactly close to the ocean, but it's about an hour's drive, and there's just there's a certain vibe to it, but it's. It's interesting because I grew up in uh, Oklahoma, so I grew up you mm. know with great wide open plains and big sky, and so moving to Portland, while I liked the you know the the lushness, the green, the trees, and all that, I I, I felt really claustrophobic. So it was sort of right. interesting. Like some one person's paradise to me was just a, it was a little bit oppressive, I guess. Yeah, that's how it goes. But the the sea's only about fifteen minutes walk away, so it's quite an easy thing to do you know walk along the beach the prom eat fish and chips and do all that kind of you know holiday type things and then you come back home and <laughs> it's like you don't have to go on holiday ever again something interesting I, when i was doing a little bit more research for this chat <clears throat> i saw that a, a, an original name for uh, a man of shadows was 
I'm going to mispronounce this, but Crepuscule with Nelly? Crepuscule? Crepuscule with Nelly, yeah. That was a long time ago because, like, A Man of Shadows had a really complicated history in terms of its first idea to final draft. Yeah, but Crepuscule with Nelly is a Thelonious Monk tune, isn't it? And uh, and Nelly was his wife, and his wife was very ill, and she was in this kind of sanatorium. And he would go and visit her at dusk because that was the visiting hours. And uh, he wrote this tune about that experience, Crepuscule. No, Crepuscule is an old word that means twilight or like twilight. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the interesting synchronicity about this is the fellow who I talked to before you is named Joe Malazzo. And he was on the show actually to promote his, his book, Crepuscule <laughs> with Nelly. So wow, I was like, that is a, that's a sync <laughs> up right there. That's amazing. Yeah. And then for a while, it was called Between Dog and Wolf, uh, which is, comes from a French phrase, entre chan et lou, which means between dog and wolf. And that's a French way of saying twilight because it's when you can't tell the difference between a dog and a wolf, i.e. between a domestic animal and, and, and a wild animal. So it's like the dangerous time. So it was called that for a while. But I think like Angry Robot had another book coming out that had the word wolf in the title. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and on on such you know such things, titles are changed. So, man of shadows, is it? Titles are really tough. I I think entre entre Chan well, however the fuck you pronounce yeah. it is uh it's, yeah. you, it made it in as a chapter title at least. So. Oh yeah. yeah, I'm not gonna let it go. You know, <laughs> I mean, if I get a good idea, I always. <laughs> <laughs> squeeze it you know right right, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah titles absolutely. are tough though i've i've had to i used to go through this thing with with my titles where i would just find words that i thought were really cool sounding so i yeah one of mine i took this old blues <laughs> song by doc reed called uh low down death right easy because i thought that had a real cool southern blues feeling it, but the problem is is that it doesn't tell anybody anything about the damn book so they, yeah. so I'm like, hey, that's cool, right? The response is normally yes, but... Well, we'll get on to the history of the title of the Body Library in a bit, I'm sure. No, we could jump right into that. Right? Oh, yeah, okay, well, like. yeah, I mean, originally, the original title was The Cut-Up Method, because uh-huh. I said to my friend Steve some years ago that someone should write a serial killer book called The Cut-Up Method, which is basically a serial killer who uses the experimental literary techniques yeah. <laughs> of Burroughs to kill people. And I thought that was really cool. So that was when in the bank. And it was that, that was the title when I first sent the very first treatment to Angry Robot for them to say yes or no on it. It was called the cut method. And all my drawings, because I do drawings to plot lines and that they cut up method. So, and then about halfway through that, I just thought, oh, hang on. There was that time when I was in that bookshop, wasn't there? So yeah, I was in a bookshop on the south bank of the River Thames. And they had this Agatha Christie display. They'd obviously put a new edition out with new covers, so they were facing the front in the crime section. And either me or my girlfriend at the time misread the title of one that said it, The Body in the Library, which is a very famous one by Miss Marple Mystery. I read it as The Body Library, and I said to Van at the time, Oh, I'm going to do a book called that one day. Yeah. yeah, you know, so that's that's sometimes you get titles and you put them in the box for later. Oh, that's a good idea. Yeah, I think whenever I get bored, I do that with uh, character names. I just start writing that because I have such a hard time with that. But I was th- I was wondering as I was reading the Body Library, how do you feel about experimental fiction? I know that your work tends to drift towards you know well not drift towards. I think it goes it takes a pretty deep dive into strangeness and weirdness. But yeah. is usually very it's very formally structured, especially the the first novel in the series. The Body Library obviously gets yeah. a bit like a, a Russian nesting doll, right? Yeah, sure. Well, I take it like this. I mean, to me, it's all about the avant pulp. That's what I'm about. Mm-hmm. So it's like I kind of I have no interest in that kind of middle brow culture. Okay, mm-hmm. I'm not against it. I just don't react to it in a very kind of physical or pleasurable way so i like really pulpy stuff and i like kind of the avant-garde and i try and bring those two together in different combinations for each book um i am a storyteller without a doubt that's what i am i don't want to tell stories i want to the audience to react to those stories so i'm never it's not or not often am i going to be pushing it towards the really difficult experimental edge okay mm-hmm. although i have done a little bit but that's not my main job. My main job is to merge those two together to create stories 
that are interesting in and of themselves as as plot and character, but also the language is of interest as well in its in and of itself. Mm-hmm. So when I get an idea for a book, one of the first things I have to do in the process of creating that is to work out where it's going to lie on that spectrum between pure pulp storytelling and extreme experimental, yeah? Mm-hmm. And I think the Nyquist books, because from the early days they were going to be noir and I was I was going to be playing with the tropes of noir, I knew that they would have to plug into that kind of storytelling. The first thing that struck me reading A Man of Shadows was that, oh, this is a noir that takes, of course it moves on from there, but it, that takes place entirely in a daylight, which yeah. I thought was a, a neat a neat twist. <laughs> well, you know, from the place where you come from, there is this genre called film soleil. Have you heard of this? I have not. Which is noir films set in desert towns, basically. Oh. And it was a kind of thing, I think, in the 50s for films to do that. People on the run would often end up in these desert towns uh, being pursued by various characters and, you know, hooking up with the femme fatale in the barn and then going off in their car into the desert. So that was no one's film soleil. So there is a tiny little bit of uh, genre history to it. But yes, of course, this city I invent, Day Zone, is lit all the time. So there were no shadows or anything. So all those classic uh, location shots that you might get in a, in a novel or a film are not are not available for the first half of the book. And so are you thinking of it in, because the language to me feels cinematic, so are you sort of thinking of this visually when you're, when, when you're writing it? You seem like a very visual writer. Yeah, I think I am. I, I don't like the use of the word cinematic because I don't want to write books that are going to be turned into films, if you know what I mean, because sure. we all know what those books feel like when we read them. You know, it's when a book starts with car park night, you know you're in for a certain kind of thing, you know what I mean? <laughs> okay. <laughs> that, that's it, is it? Yeah, that's yeah. all I'm getting, car park night. I've got to do I've got to do all the work. Yeah, our hero emerges looking very uh, suspiciously like Tom Cruise, oddly enough. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I definitely am not interested in that kind of ready-made for film storytelling but uh, yeah i do i mean i was trained in the visual arts as, and as a, as a kid my first talent was to draw and paint and so i went to art college and all that and only took up writing after i left college so i am interested in that yeah i mean but i'm not conscious of it when i write i just pack i like to pack everything into the page that i can visuals word wise action wise and so on how many passes does it take to get as dense as it is which dense might be the wrong word. Dense makes it sound not fun, but it is definitely packed full yeah. of information. Well, I think I can talk about the two books separately. Cause, so A Man of Shadows, that was written in a way that it was a long, 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 long time ago. I got the idea for a location and a private eye. Okay. And I did a lot of work on that. And it went through a lot of drafts uh, with different stories, different Eels, etc., etc., because some of them are quite different from each other, and it probably got to like 75,000 words at times, like that. But it was always getting stuck, uh, and so I would put it aside as I do, and I would go off and do other things and pick it up again, you know. And, and years could pass, so and years did. And um, I was waiting for the last key, really, the last thing that would have to slot in place before I could do that book. And when I got that, I could then write the book, so so that that's quite a slow steady build of a novel over time when it came to the body library of course for the first time in quite a while i had to do work to a deadline and uh, i had probably six months to do so it was very different mm-hmm. crazy mad and just writing and writing and writing and writing and uh, i think angry robot were a bit shocked by the first draft because it was such a crazy outpouring <laughs> of wildness mm-hmm. you know so then, then came a, a really intensive editing process with the editor and me, where, uh, again, I didn't have long to do it in, but it, there was a lot of editing to do to make it work. Um, so, yeah, the two books. So I don't know where the density comes from. That's just me packing it in, mm-hmm. basically. I'm very aware when I write of the, of the reader, and I do write for the reader, and I write for the reader's pleasure. So I'm very actively trying to think, okay, what's going to this I need to do this I need to give the reader that I need to give the reader more yeah so that's that's a big part of my brain when I'm writing I was I was curious to go back you had mentioned that you had been waiting on a man of shadows for the last thing to slide in place what was the last 
thing that had to slide in place for that one to click? Uh, well, that would be the first chapter. Uh, quick, oh, the, sure. yeah, the, the, the notion of Quicksilver. Obviously, can't go into what Quicksilver is, but once I got what Quicksilver was doing with time, if you see what I mean. Mm -hmm. Oh, right. Okay. Okay. You can do that with time in this city. So, what does that mean for a killer? Yeah. So, once I got that, I could then, yeah, make it happen. But for a long time, it was a book with a location and a hero. That's it. So, the, the plot. Although I had the teenage girl and everything, all that was in place, but the uh, you know the search for the missing girl was in place, but that Quicksilver thing, that was the last, yeah. Yeah, and it fits really nicely there at the end, which is why we can't talk about it. Um, yeah. No, I was, uh, and then with the body library, you said that, but I mean, mm. those ideas had to have been built up over time. I know that you had a hiatus there where you were doing screenwriting, if I read yeah. that correctly. So I did. I'm sure there are just notebooks full of stuff <laughs> i used to keep ideas books yeah which i started i think when i left college in 1984 there's about nine of them i found them recently there's more than like one and a half thousand ideas in there each one with a page each numbered and so on because that's the kind of guy i am i number things but uh, so i do that but i guess that you know once i got an idea like you know the body library as i said i had to do it quickly so I, I, I had a very basic idea of that cut-up method thing, and then I just ran with that. And I do lots of – I do, like, prep where I work out backstory because both Nyquist books have got really complicated backstories, and Nyquist only knows a tiny bit. Okay, so if I can get that backstory down, and that might be, like, 10 pages of close type, you know, quite detailed, mm -hmm. and then – once I've got that, I can kind of forget about it. And then I just present Nyquist with one thing that's wrong. And then I present him with another thing that's wrong and so on. And slowly he can build up. So he's looking through this kind of tunnel vision, but slowly he's putting it together as best he can. He doesn't get it all, but he gets a lot of it. Uh, that's the basic idea uh, plot-wise, you know, structurally behind them in terms of me writing, work out the backstory quite in detail, and then improvise Nyquist in terms of what clues he finds. That's cool. So it's like you're kind of setting down a baseline and then you get to sort of riff with the character, which is cool. That's it. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. I was noticing also um, in both books, this this might be, I'm jumping to more thematic elements, but so in Man of Shadows, you have a bunch of different chronologies, right? A bunch of different timelines, essentially. Yeah. People can... Yeah people can purchase corporation this well essentially one major corporation has i guess monetized all these different timelines that people can be on and so one of the problems that nyquist runs into is that he's sort of compulsively changing his watch to whatever timeline he happens to slip into which leads to a mental kind of rending in the form of yeah. something called chrono is it chronostasis chronostasis stasis, yeah, stasis, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so he basically he's he's kind of overwhelmed by this. But then in the body library, there's uh, a, a, a sort of similar thing happens where he's in Storyville, which is a city that's made up entirely of stories, and there yeah. are storytellers on street corners, and every everything is put in terms of story and story, story, story. So, it struck me as sort of uh, reflecting just how fast things are sort of accelerating in our world, and I wonder if you, if that's something that you were conscious of when you were writing it just like the, the the rapid accelerationism of everything and you know a thousand mm. tweets coming at you a minute and commercials all right and yeah i think that that might have the shape of a question maybe okay um <laughs> i try to be as unconscious of everything as i can when i write so oh, okay. in the sense of like i don't i'm i'm not the kind of writer who's going to give you a message you know sure. so um that kind of stuff so i'm i'm the opposite of that so um if there is anything that's being picked up on, people are being, I obviously can pick up on it and so on, but I'm not consciously making an effort to mirror contemporary society or anything like that. But obviously the books do grow out of contemporary British life, mm -hmm. you know, for me, even though they're set in 1959, it is an alternative 59. And, and yeah, there, it's like a portrait of various cities in, in, in Britain. But I mean, just to go back to the original idea for this, it was a, re, a reading of uh, Italo Calvino's uh, book Invisible Cities. Have you read that one? I have not. No, but it's on yeah. my list now. 
Okay. Uh, well, what it is simply, it's a kind of fictional travel log. It's quite a small book. And there's probably 50, it's about Marco Polo is, is reporting to the emperor about the different cities that he's visited in his life and in his explorations. And so each city is given, say, a page. They're very short, these pieces. And each city has got something different about it, something weird about it, or surreal, or science fictional, or fantastical about it. And as I was reading this, it struck me, I just got this idea, what would it be like to set a detective story in each of these different cities? cities you know and so that was another idea that was put away and put aside and when i came up with the idea of day zone i thought oh right that's what i'm doing now although day zone has got nothing in itself to do with invisible cities it was that idea passed on that each time nyquist is going to go to a different city and each city is going to be very different so each novel is going to have a very different feel to it in terms of its subject matter though of course nyquist will always end up <laughs> as it is one being involved in spectacularly dangerous and surreal events that are to do with that city because he just can't help it <laughs> right 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 yeah yeah it's kind of a classic noir protagonist in that sense where it's you know you can you can see him i like the fact that he becomes uh, in both books he sort of becomes bodily invested in the yeah. case you know the other manifesto exists right right but and, and the original the, the official version's got like probably 30 points in it but it can be boiled down to just one of them which is content the content of a story acts like a virus okay well yeah that's the basic idea behind the other avant pulpism so um yeah form is the host content is the virus infect infect that's the line i was searching for oh, i'll say it again yeah, that's it. So form is the host, content is the virus, infect, infect. So what that boils down to is that the idea that the story itself is a host for a virus, the content of a story, the, the structure is the, fo the form, yeah, that's the host. The content infects the structure, the form. Uh, it makes sense to me. Okay, and so... So I will always be wanting to search for a language that allows that to happen, both in terms of event and character. And Nyquist in both books acts as a kind of, is the infected being, if you like. His, his whole being is infected, first of all, by time and secondly, by words. And this, even if you go back to my first book, Vert, you can see there how the people are being infected by dream. In a book like Needle in the Groove, they're being infected by music. Uh, in foreign art cars, they've been infected by noise and so on. So this is a this is a very uh, thing that I do and that I will always do. Um, even though I might not set out to do that, it will always happen. You know. That is one of the coolest fucking things I've ever heard. <laughs> Great. <laughs> That's Smash awesome. It. That is I love gold. It. Yeah. Yeah, it's gold. It's a one mind manifesto. Um, I like to think it's the shortest manifesto I've ever written. So yeah. Um, yeah, and that's that's held me in good stead, right? You know, over twenty five years of storytelling, it's it's yeah, it's done the job. And oh, so much stuff is clicking into place for me now because I'm thinking about I'm thinking about books that don't work, and every time I can think of it, I'm like, okay, they have they have the form, right? But there's in a lot of books, there's no there's no virus underneath it. You know, there's nothing to, to in, infect the reader. It's just, it's kind of an empty vessel almost. And yeah. And it, it does feel like, yeah, I'm going to have to chew on that for a while. I'm probably going to get that tattooed on my arm or something. <laughs> <laughs> but but it, uh, it kind of, like the, the Body Library, inter interestingly enough, reminded me of this book. I don't know if you've read it called uh, The 20 Days of Turin. No, I don't know it. Okay, so this was written. This is really kind of a fascinating thing. I'm gonna I'm gonna get this way wrong. I should probably look it up so that I don't look stupid. But I'm just gonna go out on a limb and say it was written in the 70s, I believe. Um, and it's about a, a this <clears throat> town where people create something called uh, I think it's literally the the library, and it's a place where um, the citizens of this town can essentially. Uh, store their diaries and so everybody begins reading each other's diaries and over 20 days the town sort of descends into madness and it's kind of looked at as this interesting precursor to social media 
<laughs> because of mm. course, like when it was written, there was there was no inkling that we would have things like Twitter or Facebook. But it's it's fascinating that the the author is kind of descri- describing this, you know, mm. social media structure. Who and, is the author? Uh, Giorgio de de Mar- Maria. I get so embarrassed when I have to say things that are not in English, and sometimes yeah, sure. And, and sometimes when they're actually in English too. Um, but yeah, Giorgio de Maria uh, is my horrible rendering of of this guy's name. But yeah, no, I, I guess it just the idea of of a sort of living, like there's a, a kind of a sinister force almost behind words. I yeah, think, I thought it was kind of a, a linking thing. So. It goes back as well to uh, continue the tradition of mispronouncing names. Jorge Luis Borges, mm. Borges, yeah. So yeah. Uh, who did those classic stories, the Library of Babel and the, La- the Babylon Lottery, which are very important stories to me. The Library of Babel is an infinite library. It's got every book that could possibly exist, including all the ones that are just complete gobbledygook. And the book, the, li- uh, the Babylon Lottery, is about them, an infinite lottery. And those feed into Nyquist, especially the idea of a time crash in the first one. And then in the second one, especially the idea of the grand hall of narrative, where, you know, they're desperately trying to control every person's story in an interlinked fashion, but using like 1950s technology of brass tubes and metal mm-hmm. <laughs> filing cabinets and so on. Um, yeah, that's where it goes back. Some of the ideas go back to Borges, definitely. I, I really loved uh, his Don Quixote where, mm. if I remember correctly, I thought this was so brilliant. It was a, a re-envisioning of Don Quixote that this, this guy was writing, but he was writing Don Quixote word for word the exact yeah. same way. That yeah, Pierre Menard. Right, right, right. Pierre yeah. Menard, author of Don Quixote. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And, it was, it, <laughs> and it was sort of structured as a review about how different it was, even though, you know, yeah. and it was like this kind of... Well, somebody did that, didn't they? When that that person who made remade Psycho shot by shot. Yes, that was. But in uh, color. Wasn't that Gus Van Sant who did that? Yeah, it was. Yeah, but they, they just did it in color. That's the only difference, you know. Right, right. And it just wasn't as good as the original somehow. But there it is. Yeah, yeah. When you do a shot for shot remake, and it's like ah, it's just missing something. It's missing the. Yeah. I don't know. The virus, maybe. I don't know. There's something. Yeah. There's the something. shadow. Right. It's missing the shadow, the shadow of Hitchcock's mind and the and dark. It, yeah, and it's it also it kind of reminds me also of just like going back to, to cut-ups. There is, there is something about them that for me has just like sort of never worked. Although I have mm. become really interested in uh, experimental literature lately. And mm. it's fascinating. It's weird to me because I, I would read books by, there's a guy, uh, Gary J. Shipley, who writes these sentences that are really kind of hard to wrap my head around. But when I read them, I feel uh, sick and bad. Kind mm. of like uh, when people read from, well, I guess in the body library, when they read it, they get, you know, sort of tingles. Um, but this sort of strange experimental writing where the words are extremely focused on, uh, you know, blood and piss and shit and just like kind of throwing all this horrible imagery at me. I kind of like feeling weird. I don't know. Maybe I. It's the. It's like listening to extreme metal. There you go. Yeah. Isn't exactly. it? You know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When they're going on about all this horrible stuff, but you can't help listening to it. And right. Just like getting off on it. <laughs> right. Exactly. And I, I I try to explain this to people, and they just give me this blank look. Like, why would you want to? I mean, I have a I have a kind of I'm I'm, I'm you know I don't have, I don't spend my hours reading experimental fiction. You know, sure. uh, I might have done when I was younger, but not anymore. So, and as I went as I said at the beginning, the the storytelling aspect of it is very important to me. So I do try and combine the two in a certain way. Well, what do, what do you read for fun? Like, what's what's on your shelf right now? Oh, I read crime. Ah, okay. Yeah. I review crime as well, so most of my time is taken up with that. And my first ever crime book is coming out later this year, so I'm entering a dark world at the moment. Can you talk about that at all? Yeah, sure. That. I mean, That's awesome, because crime, <laughs> crime is my shit. Like, I have a, I have is a, it? I have a small press uh, called Broken River Books that puts out uh, crime fiction. So yeah. it's kind of my wheelhouse. So it, it, it crept up on me. A friend told me the story. Of an incident 
from the very, very early days of a world-famous rock band. True story. I'd never heard this story before. But as I walked home from having coffee with him, it played in my head, and by the time I got home, I got this plot to do with this serial killer, okay? And uh, it was to do with this incident in this rock rock musician's life. And I, I had to work out... It's all about an imaginary village that some kids create. Um, and... Uh, when they're in later life, there's one of the kids who invented this imaginary village becomes a world-famous rock star in the glam rock era. This is my story now. Uh, one of them becomes a serial killer. They're both taking elements from the imaginary village that they invented when they were like young teens and outsiders. So that's the basic idea. So the, the detective, and it's a police procedure, the detective, when he's at starts investigation he thinks he's you know he's investigating something in the world but in fact as he goes through it he discovers that actually it's all to do with this imaginary village that six young people invented when they were like 11 or 12 or 13. um so he has to investigate and they're they're old people they're older people now because like you know 12 years have passed and uh, it's set in 1981 um so it's a historical novel it's very 1981 very much to do with Thatcher's Britain and Brixton riots and all that kind of stuff. A bit more real than what I'm used to. Uh, The language is more pared down. It's not, I'm, I'm, I can't go as crazy with it just because it is very real and it's quite down and dirty and a bit gritty, you know. So it's been an interesting write. Yeah. So I hope people like that one. It's, um, yeah. So when I got there, I had to work out a reason why this serial killer was killing people to do with this imaginary village, okay? So, and I, I worked it out. It took me a while, but I got it. And I went back to the guy who told me the original story. And I said, what do you think about this for a reason for people killing each other? And he said, that's an amazing reason for people to kill each other. You should write that book. You yeah. should write that book. And he is a crime writer, by the way, this guy. Right. He's a published crime writer. So I thought, oh, okay. So I have to write the book then. So I did. <laughs> that's that's an amazing thing for, for one friend to say to another. Like, that's that's an incredible reason to kill somebody. <laughs> yeah, I know. I thought he was. Yeah. I, in my mind, I thought he was, but I thought I'd need to check with an expert who's a crime writer, you know. Right, right, right. Yeah, exactly. The, so, thing, the things that crime writers talk about, you know, just like... I know. Like, if anybody went through... I had a, a friend, his name is Jeremy Johnson, <clears throat> who was uh, researching his, uh, his first novel, and uh, during the process, he actually got a visit from the suits, like, from, mm. like, the men in black, essentially, because his search history had turned up so many, I guess, dings that they had to Mm. sort of flag him as a person of interest. And I just, it made me think, it made me wonder how many authors out there are on watch lists for their search history. Like, how do you get, you know, bloodstains out? And how do you, you know? (laughs) Yeah, I know. Well, I write horror films with a friend of mine and we, we've had to stop meeting in cafes basically because, uh, you know, we get not we get dirty looks from the mums with their kids because we're talking about really, really horrible things. Yeah, yeah. But it's just we're just writing horror films, right? You know, got to talk about this stuff, dismemberment and all that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's amazing. So was that was that what you were working on uh, during your your screenwriting years? Was your focus primarily on horror films at that time? No, I was. Um, mainly uh, on science fiction yeah like people who would buy options on my stories and stuff i was trying to do scripts on that and didn't work out in the end but i still live in hope of mm-hmm. having a script out it's something i still do every friday morning me and steve meet up and write ideas and scripts and stuff send them off you know that kind of stuff were you kind of like itching to get back to to novel writing the whole time when you were doing that or did you kind of like not the whole time no uh but towards the end definitely yeah yeah, you're like, I, yeah. Gotta, I just got to get these ideas out on paper. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> because that's the trouble with entering the screenwriting world. You just get lost in it. And then you wake up one day, you realize that you've had nothing in front of an audience for like years. Right. You know, without that audience writer thing, what is there? There's nothing. You know, it's just words in the dark. What's the point of them? So, yeah, I was I was I was thinking about that recently because I've heard people uh, kind of express sort of writerly platitudes on Twitter or whatever and you know it's like if 
if you're if you're writing and you don't have an audience that's okay because you're writing just just to write like just for the beauty of the art and i was like fuck that i'm yeah i, I want like people to listen to me i like attention yeah yeah <laughs> There's a lot of those platitudes out there, isn't there? Oh yeah, especially uh, on Twitter. I don't, I don't find yeah. very much writing advice uh, to be very valuable. No. Well, uh, well, recently I did a talk for some young people um, uh, who were like teens, basically, who wanted to be writers, and uh, because I'm 60 years old now, and I decided it was time to talk about a certain subject I hadn't talked about before, which was how I write, how I write, I use this secret method, yeah, and for the first time ever, I told people what it was, and that, for just for those kids, uh, I think the only person I think I've told my brother in detail, but before, since then, just these kids, and it, so, you know, uh, which was quite interesting, uh, when I was 19, I invented these laws, these creative laws, and yes. I followed them, yes. to this day, I follow those two laws, uh, but I've only just started talking about them now. Yeah, I've got I've got Noon's Law written in my note here, ah. so I was getting <laughs> okay. to that. I was definitely right. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, let's so get to that. I know. I yeah. know. I know Noon's Law. If you could uh, tell our listeners about Noon's Law a little bit, and you you hinted at there being another law which I'm not familiar with, so I'm curious. <laughs> well, all this is very embarrassing to me. Okay, but you know, I've started now. So when I was 19, I'll have to. I'll have to. It's, it takes like half an hour to tell the story, so I'll have to do it really quickly. When I was 19, <clears throat> I became obsessed with the idea of that as pe as artists got older, they got less good, basically. <laughs> and this is a 19-year-old's arrogance. That's what it is, uh, because, uh, you know, like David Bowie, he could write brilliant tunes and then he couldn't. Why? Mm -hmm. Why? It's, it's just a mystery, isn't it? Why? At 19, you think, why? Why would he stop writing tunes, proper tunes, great tunes? Oh, it doesn't make sense. Uh, but now, of course, I can understand a little bit more about why those things happen in life. Back then, I didn't care. I just thought this is not right. So I had this idea that it was to do with entropy that the mind as a system starts to break down just like a, any other machine does. It starts to fade into blandness. That was the phraseology I was using. And so I, I had this weird logic, reverse logic. If I could work out what that energy, what that, why they were becoming more bland and reverse that process and then apply that reverse process to me as a 19 year old, I would become a great artist that was the arrogance of my youth at that time and and i formulated it into this little law which basically says you know all artistic endeavor fades into blandness unless unless you consciously fight it so therefore consciously fight it and all the way through my life i have consciously thought that because the law became imprinted in my brain it's not it's never become subconscious okay I'm very aware that I'm doing it. So when I start to write, that law is being applied to everything that I'm doing. So when you said before about why is the work so dense, it's because I'm applying that law to it. Yeah. It has to be dense because that's my personal attempt to make it, to, to fight the entropy, uh, to fight against entropy. Uh, I know that sounds completely mad and it probably is, but for me, it works. Yeah, and it has worked. That, that's the idea, yeah. So I guess you, you mentioned it sort of when you said that that's one of the reasons why the work is so dense, but I am, I'm curious about perhaps other ways that fighting the entropy might manifest practically. Does that, does that mean a sort of rigorous schedule or um, no. sort of mind exercises, like you'd take your no. body to the gym? Okay. Nothing like that. Okay. No. Um, I saw I, when I was young, I also worked out. Right. <laughs> it's so embarrassing, all this, but... That there are four levels of imagination. Oh, this is great. This is good stuff. Yeah. Yeah. No, All it's right. Good. No, it's good. I promise. Now, this isn't like this. None of this is like worked out properly. You know, I'm not going to like produce a chart that says, "Well, this is level C." Yeah. You know, but in my mind, in my young mind, like early twenties, I got this thing, and 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 I worked out that the majority of art is actually level A imagination. Now, what by level A is when you get an idea and you play it out, okay? okay. 
you get the idea, you play it out. Now, a lot of art is that. A lot of folk music is that, for instance, you know. Um, uh, and a lot of the things that I really love in life are is that. That's what they're doing. But what Noon's Law forced me to do is it doesn't want you to play that idea out. It wants you to stop and look at that idea because behind that idea or inside that idea there's an even better idea and so it's a very conscious effort to investigate that idea to break it open to see what's inside it and then you can if you're lucky you can push it to a level b imagination and so that's one of the things that i'm trying to do uh, uh in terms of generating ideas and, uh, and coming up with word style you know the reasons why I have a very particular style when I write is because this process is going on in my head. Mm-hmm. And it's a constant process. It's a constant reminder. And a lot of this actually just goes back to the good old values that my mum and dad taught me. Okay. Right, right. <laughs> which are like Protestant work ethic values, which is work hard, never give in, take the blame for everything. No one else is to blame for every, anything in your life but you. So all those values are actually there in the work, which is that conscious effort you work and you work and you work and you never stop and you never give in and you just keep working and that's it it's exhausting it is it is yeah i'm getting tired of listening to you. but like <laughs> when i'm doing it it doesn't feel like it's exhausting you know it's like question question can i do it more push this push push is there more there you know where does the fog come from right in a man of shadows where does it come from Okay, you can go through various ideas about that, you know, but if you keep pushing and pushing and pushing, you can eventually come up and think, oh, God, right, it comes from there. That's where the fog's coming from, can't say where, but, and it's like that you break through, you see what I'm saying? I do, and And you see it in the work, too, because I I find reading your novels particularly, the answers are actually satisfying, which is rare. You don't see that in a lot of novels. Normally, you get the answer and you're like, oh, that was, you know, it was an old man in a mask the whole time, basically. Yes. <laughs> Your, yours actually, you're like, the answers... You know what, that, that, that's very conscious use of the, the law, that one, because what I do then is I get these A4 sheets and I just write on them and I write down questions, you know, where is it coming from? Why is this happening? And so on. And I just keep answering it and with different answers. And then I just, okay, well, this one, that doesn't work. And this one, this one, I new sheet of paper. Where is it coming from? Think, think more than that. Right. Uh, uh, and so, obviously, at other times, you're just being inspired. Okay. Mm-hmm. And there's nothing wrong with that. Being inspired is great. But, and as I said to these young people, inspiration isn't enough. You also have to consciously work. And it was really sweet because, like, you know, some of them came up to me and they looked incredibly young to me, of course, like innocent beings and uh, they were saying oh mr noon you've been in such an inspiration i'm going to go home and work really hard on my writing <laughs> yeah and you're like, That's so it. it's like yeah i'll do it um uh and one of the girls there did this really beautiful drawing i don't know if you've seen it it's on a, an interview i did for lit reactor they published a really beautiful little diagram that she made of the laws yes yeah it's cool yeah that is cool yeah no i uh I'm I'm curious to get back to it, but one point that I want to like stick on something that I love that you're saying because I see on Twitter. Uh, sorry to keep bringing it back to Twitter. Basically, there's this there's this sort of brain virus or meme that moves through. I I feel modern writers' psyches, and it is that um, I'm treading lightly because I don't want to offend anybody. But the idea yeah. that if you even if you can't write all the time because you know, I mean, people have jobs and, and things of that nature that preclude them from doing it. You're still a writer, even if you don't get a book out. And I, I read stuff like that, and I think that seems like kind of like bullshit to me because you you have to just you have to take responsibility for the book that you're going to write because nobody else is going to do it for you, and you have mm. to just sit down and write the book with all you know. Empathy. It's a difficult Empathy. subject. Yeah. It's difficult to talk about, especially in the edge of the Kindle, which the Kindle has allowed people to freely express themselves through narrative yes. uh, and to put that work out there and so on. And, you know, and that, that's that's a good thing. But obviously there is this other stuff going on. Now, it's difficult to talk about, but you, th- th- you do need to really apply mm-hmm. 
Uh, and again, like just to bring up the idea again, so this the second law that I came up with was yes. um, was to do with when I wrote Vert, which is my first novel line. Uh, and like lots of first novelists, you don't really know what you're doing. And so I wrote a book that my best friend at the time, Nick, would enjoy. So whenever ever I was making a decision, I said, what would Nick like, you know? <laughs> if I was stuck, okay, if I was stuck, what would Nick really love to read? And so that made me start, again, and this is a dirty term as well that we're going to talk about now, which another one, which is that writing for the reader's pleasure. I have mentioned this to people and they frowned a bit because you're meant to be writing for yourself and to express yourself and all that, you know, and that goes on anyway. You don't need to worry about that. You will always express yourself. Yes. You don't have to mess about with that, you know. So, but then I thought, okay, if I include the word unique in there, so give the right give the reader unique pleasure and you can see how the first law feeds into that word unique yes it's forcing it to happen because that's where you can push that conscious effort of the the, the tackling and breaking through the ideas to create more imaginative ones you can see how that will feed into the idea of giving the the audience unique pleasure and i think that's a good thing to do i don't it's nothing to be ashamed of in that at all books exist in that moment when the reader reads them that's where they exist okay they don't exist right. in my mind or the reader's mind they don't exist in the book but when the reader's reading it they come alive and so when you write there's nothing wrong with thinking about that moment that that moment of reading because yeah. that's when the text is going to live and if you can invest in that that's the most powerful moment that text is going to have you know, and that's what you should be concentrating on. It doesn't mean writing down to people. It doesn't mean lowest common denominator, all that kind of stuff that people talk about. It just means being invested in that moment and giving, giving rather than just doing it for yourself. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah. It reminds me of a quote that I read from uh, George Simenon, uh, who was talking about when he first got his uh, his agent and editor who kind of worked with him throughout his very long career, something like four or 500 pulp novels. Um, yeah. She sent him back his first manuscript and said, you know, you have a great, a great story here. You just have to cut every beautiful line out of it. <laughs> and the idea being that he just had, like he had too many lines that were kind of, uh, I guess, in love with themselves, like a little bit too yeah. literary. And yeah. so, Maybe not precisely what you're talking about, but it kind of reminded me of that. The idea that it's okay to, it's okay to have to have clarity and to not kind of get lost up up your own ass, essentially. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm mean, obviously I'm a very different style of writer than George Simeon. I do love his work, sure. but I'm I'm never going to write something that's pared down in that way, you know, because my imagination is always going to overflow, sure. overflow the boundaries of itself, because that's just the way I am. I was born like that, so. Uh, so it's been true to that. It's been true to, you know, every book has to have its own vision, its own language. Be true to that. Be honest about what that thing is. If it's a story, just tell the story. If it's experimental, make it experimental. Yeah, just let, yeah. It, let it be its thing. Let it find its own thing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's that's great. That is, I I just got I just got gold. And uh... <laughs> hey, did you want me to read something for you? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You got time? I got time. Yeah, I got all day. <laughs> I can read a bit. Um, let's have a look. Let's see what I've got. Oh, I'll tell you what. I'll read the bit from the Body Library about the face. Yeah. All right. So, um, yeah. So Nyquist is a private eye. He's been infected with language and stories, and it's taken over his body. And this is a, a little passage where he gets up in the middle of the night, and he looks in the mirror. It's his own face. Okay? All right. He looked up and saw his face in the dirty, cracked looking glass. His flesh was covered in black marks. They were moving just under the surface like an infection of worms or insects. The letters slivered on his skin, forming words, forming stories. He tried to read them. He tried to read his own face for a message. His own face was a cry for help. His face was a cry for help in the middle of a novel. His own face was a short story with a sad, sad ending. His own face was an experimental text without sense or meaning. His face was written by a madman. His face was a gunshot described by a drunk. His face was a penny dreadful. His face was a horror story. 
His face was a ghost story haunted by his own living self. His face was a scream written in coloured letters ten feet high. His face was a suicide note. His face was a cheap romance novel thrown in the gutter on a rainy night, the pages sodden, trampled underfoot by high heels and brogues. His face was a list of things to buy and keep in storage in case the bomb should ever fall. His face was an instruction leaflet for a self-destruction device. His face was a science fiction story about a robot who started to feel emotions. His face was a racy pulp thriller starring femme fatales and doom private eyes. His face was a dialogue between a dead man and a living woman. His face was a love message written in lipstick on a mirror his face was a page torn from an encyclopedia filled with useless information about things that no longer existed his face was a screwed up page from a manuscript tossed in a waste paper basket his face was a fading page of words turning to grey letters disappearing his face was a blank page his face was a blank page his face was a blank page his own face in the mirror was a blank page. That was great. Okay. Yeah, no, that was awesome. And it was great because in the background, there's a, there's a, at the very end, there's like a car going by very, it, it, adds, <laughs> it adds a nice little bit of like ambience yeah. there. Yeah. So what that, what that is in terms of writing, that's when, you know, you're going along and you reach a certain thing and you think, oh, oh, and then it just happens, you know. So that just took me over when I wrote that bit. The whole book isn't like that, by the way. You know, it has got stories in it and so on. But sometimes you just get these moments and then you run with it and then you, there's nothing else you can do. You just got to express that thing and let it go mad a bit and then you bring it back and you control it again. Whenever I read that in a live situation, I'm always very moved by it, especially at the end. Yeah, no, uh, it's, yeah it's great. And it feels it's, like it feels like that is what a lot of good fiction is. I've always felt it was like a kind of contract, contracting and then releasing sort of. So you sort of build tension and whether it's through plot or the language itself and it gets sort of tighter and tighter and tighter and tighter. And then you have uh, pieces like that that just are give give a moment to breathe. But in that moment of, of breath, I feel that people are very open to kind of whatever emotion. It explodes it as well, doesn't it? It, yeah, it, it, does. it? it breaks up the thing, the narrative, and then you go back into the narrative. So yeah, it works. Yeah. yeah. And in context as well, you'd have to read the novel, but it does work in the concepts of if it's psychology at the time, you know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I highly recommend both of the books. Uh, I knocked them out in a couple of days, so I didn't put them down. Um, really a breath of fresh air. I'm pretty grumpy. You wouldn't get it from this uh, interview, but I'm, I'm mostly sort of uh, unsatisfied with a lot of fiction that I read recently. <laughs> So, yeah. so it was nice. It was nice to read a couple <laughs> of books that I felt were really great. And uh, it was great to have you on. I, I appreciate your time. Well, thanks for having me. It's been good fun. Yeah. Really good. Yeah, yeah.